0: And uh, just a couple of short announcements. Uh, You know that I, those of you know that I do a uh, Bible study in my home for men every Monday morning. That started with six men about four years ago, it now has over 45. Uh, And the Lord has given us a a new location, a building. Uh, One of the men has uh, bought a commercial office building and has given us space. And so effective tomorrow morning, we will be at a new location that for any of you who are interested in coming, uh, please feel free. We're there from about 7.30. We we start socializing and have coffee. It starts at 8 o'clock and goes from 8 to 9. uh, And it's right one floor. You don't have to climb any steps. It's at 43.75. 43.75. I'll write it 43. radio road you're welcome so if you're interested feel free to, to be there um, you know how I often uh, always talk to you about making certain that our um, I got it that our walk with God matches our talk with God right That when we talk about we are very good at talking about God to people, my concern is, does the uh, walk match the talk? And I always told you about this: that some of us, unfortunately, I hate to say this, would be better off if we never said anything. <laughs> uh, because you know, we, we're out in the world; we're living out in the world in every aspect of our life. We're 100% out in the world, and then we, you know, all of a sudden we we feel free to speak about the gospel, and people look at us, and here's what they see: hypocrite, hypocrite. Do I want to be affiliated with people like this? And that doesn't mean that we don't fall. Oh, please. I fall so many times during the day, I can't even keep track of it. All right? From the moment I step, I can get out of bed. But there's a difference. There's a difference between someone who's trying to do the right thing by God and is a Christian and repenting and understand that, and someone who is really just has a tin ear for, for what the gospel teaches us. And so uh, this week, uh, one of our classmates, Bill Osborne, gave me something that I'd like to share with you, which is a story about what happens What happens when, <clears throat> in fact, we, we live a life in which our, our uh, walk does not match our talk. The light turned yellow just in front of him. He did the right thing, stopping at the crosswalk, even though he could have beaten the red light by accelerating through the intersection. The tailgating woman was furious. She honked her horn. She screamed in frustration as she missed her chance to get through the intersection, dropping her cell phone and makeup. As she was still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on her window and looked up into the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping off the guy in front of you, and cussing a blue streak at him. I noticed the, quote, what would Jesus do bumper sticker. (laughs) The, quote, choose life license plate holder the, quote, follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker, and the chrome-plated Christian Jesus fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. <laughs> Sad but true, sad but true, isn't it? I'm telling you, absolutely sad but true. Um, So we are today uh, in our study in Acts chapter 17, and we are uh, about to study Paul's speech to the Athenians. And I have momentarily misplaced my notes. Thank you. So this is one of the great speeches that you'll see in the Bible, one of the great sermons when Paul is faced with having to preach to pagans. It's not in the synagogue. These are the great Greek philosophers, the great Greek thinkers, but totally pagan people, and now he's going to have to try to preach the gospel. God sent him there. God put put him there. And so how is he going to make this presentation? And so one of the things we're going to see as we go through this is that he had some success, limited, but some success. There is never evidence of a church in Athens, as we see in his other epistles, letters to the Corinthians, letters to the Thessalonians. We don't see uh, a letter Uh, To the Athenians so in that sense the success was not as it was in other places But we see that people were saved we know that uh, for example one man who became saved was Dionysius the Areopagite the very person who was sitting would have been one of the council members a Woman named Darius was saved and it says other people as well so it's significant for us when we think about this to reflect on the fact that here is Athens, this great cultural uh, position, this great tower of thinking, of intellectualism, that did not have the same thirst for the gospel as the more mercantile populations of uh, Corinth and Thessalonica. And so we see what it means, what it takes to be saved, and obviously intellect is certainly not one of them. And so when this discussion starts, when when Paul starts this this presentation uh, to the Athenians, he was still waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. They had not yet arrived. But he did not rest. He did not say, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to wait for them to get here. That wasn't Paul's method of operation. He moved forward. And it tells us, as we read the uh, preliminary aspects of this story, that he first went to the synagogue, where he would normally go where he would feel most comfortable. This would have been his, his, where, he, where he felt most at ease, where he could speak to Jews and Gentile believers, who he could talk about the Old Testament and weave the story of the gospel through the Old Testament and show the prophecies being completed. But what we're going to hear, this story has nothing to do about what went on in the synagogue. Nothing that you're going to hear about Mars Hill relates to the synagogue. In fact, what happened was, he went out into the marketplace after he went to the synagogue. And it was in the very marketplace, which to you is the world. He went into the marketplace where he impacted these people that caused him to be asked to come to Mars Hill in front of the council and present this Christian philosophy. And so the first lesson for us is that sometimes God takes us outside our comfort zone. You know, you'd rather speak to people that look like you. You'd rather speak to people that think like you. uh, And you really don't feel that comfortable talking about God to people that aren't like you, who sometimes may be even pagans, who are agnostics, who are atheists, And it's rather in some cases distasteful for us to advance the gospel to those kind of peoples. Well, that's exactly where God wants you to be prepared to go. And this story, this lesson is so important because you're gonna see how this great evangelist speaks to pagan people. How is he going to talk about God without being able to use the Bible? They don't believe in the Bible. He's going to have to advance the gospel, advance God, the story of God, without using the tools that he normally would use. And yet he's going to be in front of these brilliant, intellectually adept and talented people who are familiar with philosophy and literature. So how is he going to do that? Well, one of the things that you're going to see is that the first thing he did, and what we need to do is, You learn to communicate in their language. You find a common level to preach. Uh, You speak respectfully and not hypocritically. And it's funny because it's exactly what Hayes said this morning. We learn to speak respectfully to people. You don't walk into the council and go, you know, you are a bunch of pagans you I'm seeing you and all I see is hell. I see hell. In fact, I see flames. It's a good thing that God brought me here because you losers, you losers are going to hell, you know? And so the question is, you know, have you heard people try to advance the gospel that way? I'm sorry to say I have, all right? Have you heard and you cringe and you just cringe and you say, that's how God wants us to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? He wants us to drop a bomb on them and then to pick up the debris, the human corpses that are left after, he's, after we've wrecked whatever chance we've had of advancing the gospel. You don't see this here. In fact, it's interesting because look at what he does as he finds a common level and tries to find respectfully, uh, a, 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 a respectful way to speak to them. Uh, he, this is why he said that they were very religious. Remember that? I came here and the first thing I see is I looked around your altars and I examined carefully your altars. Oh, you examined our altars carefully? You're respectful of our traditions. I appreciate that. And what I found is you are a very religious people. Now, he didn't say that they were pious in the sense of being Christian Judeo-pious, but in terms of the... Uh, uh, religion that they had, they were very superstitious, and they were careful about it. And so in that sense, he, he found a common way to say, I see that in that sense, you're very careful about doing what you believe is right. Uh, and then what does he do? He finds, after he examines these thousands of gods that they have, and these thousands of altars all over all over Athens, he finds one that says, to the unknown God. These people were so fastidious about their idolatry that they, they were afraid to even leave out a possible God. I told you last week that someone said it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. God with a small g. And so he found this unknown God altar. And so what does he do? He says, this is the common level. I'm going to use this that they already understand. And I'm going to say, you see that unknown God, that altar that you have, I'm going to speak to you about that unknown God because he is my God, he is the creator. And so that's how he begins this great great presentation. And so, let's begin, if we could, with verse 22, where he begins his, his presentation. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. And that was one of the words we talked about first. Proclaim. I've come to proclaim. All right? I've come to announce God. Verse 24 The God who made the world. Circle that. He is now saying, The God, my God, the God, is the Creator. This verse, verse 24, will focus on the very essence of the greatness of God. Uh, and so as he does this, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, the entire creation that you see, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that God does not live in Temples built by hand. So effectively, in one sentence, he has basically destroyed their religion. That's what he's done. He's basically said to them, you people are worshipping the creation. You're worshipping mountains. You're worshipping horses. You're worshipping birds. You're worshipping all different aspects of creation and you're missing the creator. And that's what man does. It's the glorification of ourselves. We miss the very essence, the very essence of the Alpha and the Omega, the very Creator Himself. And so, as He he makes this, this point, what He is effectively doing for them is He is answering, He is laying in their minds the question that has to be answered: Well, where do I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? all these questions that every human being that's ever lived has in their minds what is what is this why do i wind up in here he is he is effectively answering that question because only christianity answers all three of that those questions so paul said in the beginning there was god god made the world and everything in it he is not a distant divorced from creation God, which is what they had. Their God sat above humanity and basically were amused. They were amused by what they saw. They weren't involved with the creation. What went on beneath them was all fate, and every person was just subject to the fates. And now what he's talking about now is he's making it very clear that our God is not divorced from his creation. He is too great to be housed in temples, but God is still concerned for man's needs. Now, this was important because the Greek philosophy, they were unable to conceive of any real distinction between God and the universe. In their religious systems, effectively, they were worshiping the creation. And so, one of the things that we we come to terms with on a regular basis that God does not dwell in temples made by hand. This was a thought that would be unfamiliar to pagan ears. And I wanted you just to see, get a, an, uh, a, a perspective of this. If you would turn with me to First Kings. First Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8 verse 27. And this is on the occasion of the dedication of the temple by Solomon, okay? So here we have a temple being dedicated, one of the great temples in the history of the world being dedicated. Look what Solomon says at the very dedication of that temple in verse 27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple. I have built. So the point being is that we have in our tradition a clear understanding. God is not in the temple. God is not there. You don't make some some little piece that identifies what God is. God is the creator of the universe. He's created you. And so uh, these were elements that would have been completely unfamiliar to these pagans. Now, continuing on. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. God doesn't need anything from you. There's nothing that you can give to God that he needs. We discussed this on the concept of tithing. God doesn't need your money. Tithing isn't about money, it's about love, it's about worship. Because that's what God wants to see. He wants to see your love for him and your worship of him and your obedience of him. But you can't give God anything. And so what was happening here is these pagans were involved in these very elaborate ceremonies to these pagan gods thinking that they were giving something to the God that would placate them as if God needed anything from us. But now what he's laying out is now he's laying out the very goodness of God, the very goodness of God, as a provider. So as we continue that verse, he says, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Everything that you have, Areopagites, everything that you have, Greek citizens, from your wealth to your housing, to your family, to your relationships, it all, comes from him it is not fate it all comes from him from one man he made every nation of men this is a concept again they found foreign Greeks believed they were an elevated race they were a special people they were higher than others they were more gifted they had a better land it was how the Greek Greeks viewed themselves in relationship to the world And so now the concept that we all come from one man, one created man, Adam, again, a foreign concept, but it was critical to laying out where Paul was going with this this message. For From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. In other words, this not this did not happen by fate. God didn't put you in a pinball machine, press the button, saw where the where the marble went and then wound up you wound up here by fate. God determined who you were going to be. Someone would be Moses, someone else would be Pharaoh. You couldn't choose who you were. God determined who you were. You didn't choose your parents. God determined who you were. And for those of us here, we've won the genetic lottery because we're in the United States. You ever stop to realize? Ever stop to realize what would it be if you didn't win this genetic lottery and instead you were in Africa? You ever, ever stop to realize what that confluence of events would have meant to your life if that's what have happened? And instead by one gift, God allowed you to be born here in America and that's what he was saying to the Greeks. This is not a chance. This is not a fate. And God has preordained this. And so why? He, he has determined the time set for them, meaning God has set the calendar. God has set the clocks and the exact places where you should live. And you Greek council, you Greek citizens, God determined that you would be here at this moment in time. And then verse 27, God did this. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Oh, is that why God did this? Yes. God did this so that you would realize the glory of God in putting you where you are, in his beneficence, in giving you what you have. And you then should have said, God, I'm not worthy of these gifts, and I seek you and repent, and seek to get closer to you. That's what this is about, as he's laying out the foundation for this uh, presentation. He says, continuing on, he said, For God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Again, underline that, though he is not far from each one of us. A foreign concept. Greeks didn't believe that. The Greeks believed the gods were far away. That they didn't intervene in their lives, but not our God. Our God is with us. He is not divorced from His creation, He is united with His creation. And so you see the difference in what, where He's going. And now, what He does is now, as I said again, He finds a common level. And the common level here, as He respectfully makes this presentation, is He uses their literature. Just think about the brilliance of this. He is speaking to pagan people and yet he is so gifted that he's able to be literate in Greek literature and cite a poem from a Greek poet who that was written 350 years earlier, Aratus, And he's citing this poem to let them understand that even in their own literature God it was understood that God was father of all because look at the, the the citation that he gives in verse 28 for in him and this is a direct quote from Aratus, for in him we live and move and have our being now that was written by a Greek poet you read that and you say to yourself brother John that sounds almost like you could say that about Jesus Yes, you could say that about Jesus. He's not using it for the purpose here of showing them that that they have a spiritual relationship with God. They don't have that yet. They're not adopted sons yet. They're pagans, but he's using it to say, look, in your own literature, your poets have recognized the fatherhood of one God. In him, in him, uh, we live and move and have our being. And it says, as some of your other poets have said, we are his offspring. That's their own poets. Now somebody would say to me, Brother John, why is it? How could Paul, a Jew, a Pharisee, how could he be so literate that he would be able to cite Greek poetry and literature 350 years earlier? And there are commentators that say when Paul was in Tarsus, for those nine and ten years that he was sitting there alone, cut off, when the Jerusalem church said, good luck, go go back, we'll call you when we want you, and nobody called him for ten years, that he knew that God was going to call him and use him to the Gentiles. And one of the things that he did that God prepared him was to study Greek. Be prepared. Go back and study the literature. Be prepared, because you know what? The day is going to come, Paul, when you are going to cite a Greek poem to advance my gospel. What? What? I'm going to cite a Greek poem to advance the gospel of God? Yes. Now think about this from your own life. Think about what God has asked you to do, where God has put you in the the walk that you have gone, what you've done for a living, where you have been, the lessons that you've had, the failures that you've had. And I will submit to you that God has put you there and put you through these issues because God is preparing you for someday to step on stage. And I don't know where, and I don't know how, but somebody is going to need to hear from you something specifically about Jesus. And something in your past is going to be able to connect you to some people. It's just like how is a lawyer teaching a Bible study in Naples. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't think those 37 years of me having my head beat in in court You don't think those cases, those thousands of cases that I handled in front of judges that despised my clients. If you don't think that I would sit in trials that went on for weeks at a time, knowing that I was going to lose because they despised the people that I represented. If you don't think that that wasn't a preparation for God, for God, for this. All right? Because I can tell you it was. All right? And if you asked me, come on. I would look at you, but you see, that's how God is. And so I'm submitting to you the very reason that he was able to cite Greek literature is because when he was back in Tarsus, God touched his heart to say, you need to be prepared. You need to be ready to stand on the stage and go forward at a time that you're not even going to understand why. And he did. And so there he was, able to say this, and then continuing on. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by God's man, by, by man's design and skill. We don't, you can't make God. You're making God. You're making God. Don't you realize God made you? He made you in his image. And yet you are out making birds? You're making birds? You're making horses? And you're worshiping this? Don't you realize what you've done to God? How you've marginalized God when he's made you in his very own image as your own poets have recognized? Don't you realize this? And so he continues on. An image made by man's design and skill. And in the past, he goes, and this is important, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Why did he overlook it in the past? And why has things? Why are things changed now? Well, he tells you why in the next verse. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, this is serious. In other words... He's not gonna wink at your ignorance anymore. He's not gonna forget you worshiping idols. He's not gonna forget that you're sitting here in paganism, forgetting him, because he sent a savior. He sent a deliverer, and that very deliverer is going to judge, and is he going to judge? Well, let's take a look, please. Is he going to judge? Turn with me, please, to John. Gospel of John, chapter 5. Verse 22 and 23. This is Jesus speaking now. When Jesus said, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then continue down, continue down to verse 27, and he has given him authority, that is Jesus. He has given Jesus authority to judge because he is the Son of man. This is serious folks, this is understanding let's understand what we're dealing with. In other words, here's what, he, here's what he's saying. God has sent the deliverer. God has sent the Savior while he would have winked before and forgiven your ignorance. That's gone. That's over. The days of, of, of winking and forgetting are over. and now, that very savior that very lifesaver reaches out to you to be to save you and if in fact you reject him there will come a day when you will have to look at him because he will judge you oh this isn't all about kumbaya <laughs> oh this isn't about roasting marshmallows around a fire where's the love yeah You see, there's a judgment. We don't like to talk about judgment, but there's a judgment. And the judgment is very clear because he's been sent to be the Savior, and he will be the judge. And in that day of judging, in that day of judgment, that's what you're going to have to face. And so what happened? What happens here is that when they heard the resurrection concept, oh, please, oh, that's it, that's enough. We've heard just enough. Resurrection? We'll get back to you. you. know, We'll get back to you. Okay, And he never had a chance to finish. And so you, when you see this, this is an incomplete presentation because he does not identify who the Savior is, which, of course, you know, if he had another 5 or 10 or 15 minutes, he would have said, it's Jesus. It's incomplete, but no matter how incomplete it is, you still see that people were saved. And so I've prayed about this, and, and I believe that God has laid on my heart the following. I believe that you and we as a class need to be able to say, how would we make the presentation today to Mars Hill? How should we advance the gospel to people who are pagans? How should we advance the gospel to people who are agnostic who don't believe in the Bible and so next week the class is going to be a presentation that I would suggest you could make to someone who does not believe in God someone who does not believe in the Bible a presentation that you could make that will not rely on the Bible as the inerrant Word of God but rather will be a historical presentation to someone who with who's intelligent, who's an agnostic, but at the end, will conclude with Jesus being the Son of God. And I hope you'll pray about it, and I believe it's something that we need to have. In fact, when I said it this morning, you know, and I don't know why God put it on my heart, because this isn't the things that I have prepared. I have to write this up separately this week. Uh, And a woman came up to me and said to me, you have no idea I'm gonna be meeting with my daughter next week, and she's an agnostic. And I believe she said that God put that on your heart. And I said, you know, it's, that's how God is. We don't know why, but that's how God is. And so let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you give us the chance to worship you, to come together in this class, that these people have such a hunger for you, Lord. I ask that you take these words, multiply it in our heart, God. Give us the application in our hearts for this coming week, Lord, that we grow with your word. And now I ask that a wall of protection be around these dear people until they can be back again safely next week. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 God bless you all.